0: Good morning. If I can remember what I did with my glasses, we'll read the bulletin together. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Amen. Amen. Uh, scratch number two, we're not coming back tonight, so put that on for next week, uh, back to Samson, baby bottle drive, uh, continues, of course, uh, until Father's Day, get those full and bring them back, prayer meeting Wednesday at seven, Andrea's number, deficit, um, SGBA conference coming June 21 and 22, that's coming so fast, what is that, about two weeks, Mm -hmm. um, flyers with more information um, uh, on the foyer table, new acts, I don't have one with me, new acts and facts and days of praise are here, also the free uh, grace broadcaster for spring is out there if you haven't gotten yours. Make use of that stuff, Um, doesn't do any good sitting out there on the table. All right, what else? Nothing else. Our scripture for meditation this morning, Ephesians. Read 1 through 10 Let's stand and open our service. (coughs) George, would you open for us today?
1: together.
2: Take your Trinity hymnal this morning, <clears throat> turn to number 80. 8 in the Trinity. favorite hymn this morning? Besides my daughter. <laughs> n- n- really? Nobody? Alright, yes, Naomi. Um, I don't know what okay. I but um, the, and they'll know we are Christians. I think it's in the brown. Um, so I, think in the brown. The yeah. I think it's, they will know we are Christians by our love. Uh, number 284 in the brand. <clears throat> 284. And why did you pick this one? Um, so it's been stuck in my head, and I think it's a really good song. And it tells a lot um, of how we can show that we are Christians. Okay. All right. Good hymn to get stuck in your head mm oh.
0: Privilege of introducing to you the entire graduating class of 2019 here at Thornville. <laughs> Hannah, <laughs> come on up. <laughs> Got to get the hat on right. Is the tassel on the right side? I think so. Okay.
2: Because
0: it's not official yet. That's
2: right.
0: They could find your records. <laughs> I have a presentation for you. For completing high school, this is the Reformation Study Bible, condensed edition. I don't know, who who puts this out? Ligonier. It's Ligonier. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Can't go wrong. I'll read the back. Uh, The Bible is not like any other book, because its ultimate author is God. As the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The Reformation Study Bible emphasizes the need for the grace of God to lead out of darkness into the light of Scripture. The Reformation Bible is carefully crafted to offer unparalleled reading, study, and discipleship for every stage of Christian life. Congratulations for that. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're thankful uh, for... First of all, for you and who you are, but we're thankful for uh, what we see in Hannah's life. Thank you that uh, you've called her to yourself. Uh, thank you for Hannah's parents who, for these last years, 18 years or so, uh, have raised her uh, in, the, in the scriptures and in your law. We think also of um, that heritage that's come down in the Luke family can't help but think of donna tonight as she'd be so proud uh, of uh, hannah and fred as he's uh, gonna be at the uh, graduation today so we just pray that um, we know lord uh, those of us that are a little older that this isn't the end this is the very beginning of life and we pray that you would uh, guide and that she would uh, look to you for all uh, things we ask these things in jesus name amen Amen. thank you Mm -hmm. I guess that's it. Hmm. Scripture reading. First Peter 2, 7 through 10.
3: be reading out of that. Congratulations. 1 Peter 2, 7 through 10, page 1888 in the Pew Bible. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.
2: You take your brown hymnals again and turn to number 512. 512 in <clears throat> the brown. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat>
4: Our scripture text this morning once again found in 1st Peter chapter 2 this morning verses 7 through 10. Our lesson from last Sunday looked at the doomsday forecast for all who reject the Jesus of the gospel. There's a great contrast in this. For believer, believers, Jesus as the foundation stone upon which we build our lives is precious. But for unbelievers, he's not precious. He's a stone to stumble over and fall. We learn from Isaiah's prophecy, primarily chapter 8 of Isaiah. Isaiah. From which Peter quoted that Israel, the chosen nation, rejected God. And it went into the occult world for worship. Idols, witches, mediums, spiritists. All of that in Israel's history. The fear level increased exponentially. As they abandoned God, they stumbled over his goodness. They no longer had the assurance of his grace and favor They were cast into utter darkness. So too in our day, if you think about it, when people reject Christ in the gospel, they do so firstly by stumbling over him, arguing with his demands, questioning his directives, fighting against his revealed will, rejecting his exclusive claims. Like the Jews said, we will not have this man to rule over us and in the end the stone they could have built their lives upon became the capstone that crushed them as they fell in unbelief same happens in our day I'll be our prayer that God would deliver us from all from ourselves if this is in fact the hurtful way that we're living our lives without Jesus. This is what unbelief does to us. It makes us the enemies of God. It causes consequences for our actions that we wouldn't wish on our worst enemy. But it comes our way, it comes the way of anyone in their unbelief. Well, today's study moves us to a more pleasant and appealing subject, as we talk about what God has done for every believer. As we come, let us seek the Lord's wisdom. Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes and open our ears that so we might see and hear the truth of your word. Yeah, we can read the scriptures, and thankfully, we have a copy. Probably most of us have multiple copies of the scripture in our possession, or at home. But Lord, we pray that you would give us insight, not just being able to read the words, but insight as to what the words are saying, the truth that they are conveying concerning Jesus, who does not change, the same God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why we read and study the scripture, because what God has declared about himself holds true century after century after century right up to our present day. He does not change, which means he doesn't change his word, he doesn't change his mind, he doesn't change his actions. He is the solid rock upon which we can stand. If we will, and I pray we will, grant us the Spirit to be our teacher in this hour, Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We're looking this morning at the subject, what God has done for every believer. Peter's words here in our text had to, had to issue this warning. Here it is, verse 8, which says of those who reject Christ, they stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. Such stumbling results in a terrible fall, also found in verse 8 there. But thanks be to God, this is not how things have to go. Stumbling, falling, are the destined consequences of rejecting Christ in the gospel, verse 7. That's true. But, okay, what if, by God's grace, a person does not reject Jesus as Savior and as the foundation stone for his or her life? What happens if you do not disobey the gospel message, verse 8, which calls on men to repent of sin and to believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Well, this morning I want to talk about three outcomes that Peter mentions for us that will occur if we are obedient to the gospel. Number one, we are a chosen people. Look at verse 9. I want you to observe here that Peter does not say that repentance of sin and believing the gospel message makes you a chosen people but rather that such faith and acceptance of Jesus indicates that you are a chosen people. Faith and repentance are essential to salvation. It's clear that the scripture teaches that. No one is ever saved apart from trusting Christ as Savior and turning away from his or her sin. So both faith and repentance are necessary, but they are the gifts of God. To his people. And that is why Peter says, you are a chosen people. He began this letter with these words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. You who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Chosen to obedience to Jesus, chosen to be sprinkled by his blood. Could anything be more clear where salvation comes from? Part of that obedience to which we are chosen is the obedience of faith, Romans 1 verse 5, and the obedience of repentance upon hearing the call of the gospel can read about that in Acts 11:18, as opposed to those who, verse eight of our text, disobey the message. Two categories. Look at verse 6. See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never." Be put to shame. The Greek word for shame here is a compound word, kata meaning down, and iskomai to shame, hence to shame down. To shame down. What's that mean? It means to be humiliated, to be defamed. So Peter is speaking of the direct opposite of what happens to the unbelieving. They stumble, they fall, they are brought down, they are humiliated in their unbelief. But the believer has nothing to be ashamed of in those regards. It's similar, I think, to John's encouragement. In 1 John 2, verse 28, Now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed. Before him at his coming. In just three verses earlier he wrote. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And if it does you also will remain in the son and in the father. And this is what he has promised us even eternal life. Jesus put it this way in Mark eight thirty-eight. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Mark 8, verse 38. Turn around is fair play. You're going to be ashamed of Jesus here and now. He's going to be ashamed of you in the there and then. And the there and then, and it lasts for eternity. How refreshing, how apropos is Peter's message to his readers here. At the present, they are comprised of a persecuted and ridiculed people among their society. Persecuted, ridiculed. They bore the bunt of bad jokes. Of ridicule and shame. They were the scum of the earth. Chapter 1 verse 6 says you have had to suffer all kinds of trials. Verse 12 says the pagans, the unbelievers, accuse them of doing wrong. Which Peter calls the ignorant talk of foolish men. Verse 15. They haven't done wrong but they, they get blamed for a lot. So like Christ, these people, Peter's audience, were suffering insults being hurled at them, verse twenty three of our text. You're being bad mouthed all the time. I would say if you take this abuse for any length of time, it'll begin to wear on you. It will. You'll begin to doubt your own sanity. You'll begin to wonder if the world may be right and, and you are wrong about a life pattern after and built upon Jesus the rock. And of course the devil comes in and plays this game with us as well. The world tells us, you are fools. And it wastes no time alluring us to the wealth and pleasure of the world. Look what you could have. Give up this Jesus guy. Oh, the wonderful things that could come your way. And so Peter is telling us, hey, just keep a right perspective. Know who you are. Well, who are you? He tells us, you are a chosen people, chosen by God himself. That's who you are. Everything that troubles you, you're Treatment by the world, the hostile attitude of unbelievers around you. Confirm this. Do not be discouraged. Keep the faith. Did not our Lord forewarn us? Here, I'll read it for you. If the world hates you, said Jesus, keep in mind that it hated me If you belong, continuing with Christ's words. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. It would. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. That is why. John 15 verse 18. I think one of the marks that we are the chosen people of God is that the unbelieving unbelieving world hates us. And that hatred spills out into the same kind of adverse, unwarranted behavior the world of Jesus' day leveled against Him. What did Jesus say? They hated me without reason. That is, they hated me for no reason. John 15, verse 25 what did I ever do to them to deserve this hatred? There was no just cause for the society of Jesus' day to hate him. And there's no just reason for our society to hate us if we are living good lives before them, verse 12 of our text. Who who would ever think That a person would be hated for being good. Yet that's the case. So with this information in tow, what then should our response be when trouble comes our way that is undeserved? Because it's going to come. Jesus tells us what our attitude should be. Here it is. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 10 and follow. Rather than hide who you are, your light, let it shine. We have an expression in our day, let the chips fall where they may. What do we mean by that? Say, so go ahead and pers- say what you want. Be nasty mouth, ridicule me, scoff, Galled me with false charges, whatever. Do your wicked thing. But I don't answer to you. I answer to the Heavenly Father. You see, persecution by the world is intended. It is intended to intimidate and to silence. But Jesus is saying, don't you do it. Stand up. Be counted. You're the salt to bring healing to a putrid world of unbelief and sin. You're the light that illuminates the only pathway to God. You're God's witness of what grace can do in a person's life. You are living testimonies of God, the Father's ownership and salvation of Well, Peter was sitting there and listening that day. And he's saying essentially the same thing. Get out of the dumps. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. You're under attack because you are an indictment against the unbelief all around you. Understand that persecution or no, you are right now a chosen people. No one can take that from you. Verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. What is Peter saying? He's saying there's a day coming when the bad mouthers... Are going to be eating their words. Instead of chiding and gritting their teeth and maligning you, they're going to glorify God because of you. Because of your life. If you live it openly. In obedience to Christ. Not now. But the day's coming. So the first thing Peter says, that we are a chosen group. We're the elect of God. Secondly, he says you're a royal priesthood. Now, a royal priesthood is a ruling or kingly priesthood. In some cultures of the world, it was, it is, the priest who ruled the people. They use occult, demonic powers, to perform astonishing feats that keep the people's allegiance. Even today, in third world countries, people fear the witch doctor because he has supernatural and demonic powers. In Muslim cultures, it is the clerics who call the shots in places like Iran, though they do not do it up front, but from behind the scene position. However, there is no such thing as a ruling priesthood in all of scripture with the exception of Jesus Christ of whom the author of Hebrews says, Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Jerusalem, the city of peace, you say. The writer of Hebrews is explaining what the name Melchizedek means. It's a ruling king. And he's the king of peace. He goes on. Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Hebrews 6, verse 20 and following. In chapter 7, he says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why then were there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Hebrews 7, verse 11. And now think about this, the ironic. Aaron was Moses' brother, you remember. The Aaronic priesthood was not a ruling priesthood. Aaron was part of Israel's theocracy governed by God under his brother, Moses' leadership. But more important, by the Levitical code given by God himself on Mount Sinai, the writer of Hebrews says, No one takes this honor upon himself He must be called by God just as Aaron was. Hebrews 5 verse 4. No one takes this honor to himself. And the text goes on to say that God also called Jesus to be a priest as well but the uniqueness here is that Jesus was God's son. The ruler of the universe. God said to him, You are my son, Today I have become your father. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. King of Salem. Fitting for type of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And thus a ruling priest, kingly priest. With all the credentials of God. Upon an unheard of, a ruling priest. Now in the spiritual priesthood established by God there was in Aaron and is now in Christ the high priest that uniquely appointed and approved go-between to intercede for the people before God. After describing the setup of the tabernacle the writer of Hebrews states when everything had been arranged like this the priest's plural, many of them, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest, singular, entered the inner room, and that only once a year, never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Hebrews 9, Verse 6 and 7. Aaron did not serve alone as priest, though he alone interceded before God on the day of atonement to placate God for the sins of the people. Now likewise, Christ does not serve alone in his priesthood, though he alone makes atonement by the shedding of his own blood for his people. There is where the believer comes into the picture. This is where he comes into the picture. Christ is the high priest forever, the ruling priest of the Godhead. But we believers serve with him, under him, under his authority. And all of this has to do with our association with Jesus and for no other reason. Like the Levites, God chose us to be his people, but more to be his priests. We do not serve Aaron or any earthly priesthood. We serve Christ. Because Christ is a ruling priest and never loses his priesthood through death or attrition, we also rule with him As a royal priesthood. There are certainly future aspects to this. For example, Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endured, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11 and 12. Or from the words of Jesus, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, verse 28. Or we read in Revelation, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because You were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. And one more in Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who are part in the first resurrection, the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 6. Now acknowledging all of this, there are certainly present-day considerations of the truth that we are a royal priesthood. Notice, not just royal but a royal priesthood. The nature of the rule is spiritual. It is not carnal. We are not called to implement dictatorial rule over the brethren, though we are to have the discernment necessary to settle matters in a godly fashion. When the Corinthian church was taking members to the civil courts to settle disputes, Paul was outraged. He said, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Boy, there's a statement. How much more the things of this life? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2 and 3. And in verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another brother, and this in front of unbelievers. What a shame. What a disgrace. Now, as corroboration of this same principle, consider where Peter came up with this concept of a royal priesthood. It comes from Exodus 19, verse 6 and following. Let me read it. Exodus nineteen six. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. Exodus 19, verses 4 and following. Now, kingdom here does not refer to territory or land, but to people. So God is saying, You are not an aggregate of individuals, you are an organized religious entity, you are not a republic a self-governing body, but you are subjects of a monarch. What is more, you are a kingdom of priests. That is, there is no civil magistrate over you, but a spiritual one, even God whom you worship. This implies that everything we do in our service has religious character to it and is all to be done for God. I don't care where you work. Carpenter, case of Doug. In a shop, running a machine. What we do, we do for the Lord. We're His priests operating in His world, giving forth a spiritual picture. ...of the church ruled by a monarch, the Lord Christ. Let me read it for you. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. First Corinthians 12, 27. And in Romans 12, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function... So in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Beautiful picture. So none but Christ is master. We priests then do not worship God in ways Jesus would not sanction. Remember that story of the strange fire? offered by Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, before the altar of God. What happened to them? God struck them with, I don't know, a bowl of lightning and fire or whatever, and they were incinerated on the spot. We do not believe or promote doctrines that God does not reveal. Soul sleep. Where did the Mormons come up with that? We do not observe any ordinance that has not been approved. Baptism for the dead. Where did they come up with that? Foot washing. Where do we see that in the scripture as an ordinance? What is more, in our decorum, we do not follow our own logic and our own reasoning to determine the will of God or the nature of our service. To do so is to usurp our sovereign's place. We do not follow men, no matter how good an expositor of the Bible they may be. To do so is to exalt them to the throne which belongs to Christ alone as the head of his church. We have no right to think thoughts and act deeds because they seem good to us. Or profitable, or spiritual. Our every move from morning to night is directed by our high priest, who is Christ. We are to think as he directs us to think. We are to do his bidding. Of course, that means you have to be a student of the Word of God to know what he thinks about this issue, that issue, and so forth. It's not going to come to you magically. The psalmist put it this way, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 19, verse 9 and 5. Now, you can't prove upon that. You can't prove upon perfection. The ruling high priest, Jesus, has made us all a royal priesthood. And then thirdly, a holy nation of people belonging to God. should not escape our notice that in all of these descriptions, Peter is emphasizing the collective whole. King James version brings this out not in our modern translations however it brings it out by saying ye it's King James English but ye is plural ye are a chosen generation ye are a royal priesthood ye are a holy nation it's ye plural It is you, but in the sense of your interconnection with the other people sitting next to you in the pew of this local church. Yes, we have a connection with other believers in remote parts of the world and the community that's quickly realized whenever you meet a fellow believer and you have some time to interact. But they are there and we are here They must see their priesthood and obligation fulfilled in their geographical locale and we must fulfill ours here. How shall we do this? By being active within our local assembly in all those gifted areas needed to carry on ministry. And we don't have to guess at that either. Teaching helps knowledge. Yes, but also administration, admonition, mercy, caring for one another. Loving the brethren that God has put in our path. Reaching out to our contacts with the gospel. Ministering as parents to our children and to the elderly and the ill of body. As, and those that are sad of soul. Those people who cross our path. Now to do this we have to guard our associations. and We're back to no doctrine but what our high priest teaches. We have to watch our own drive for excitement and what we deem is honoring to God. We cannot put personal preference into the mix and say, oh, this is of God. People do that all the time. In the church, it is not the individual that is dominant, but the nation, the people at large. And in particular, the people to whom God has connected us through his providential leading and grace. I think parachurch organizations have their place for voluntarism and support, but not at the expense of your involvement with the people to whom God has united you. I wonder how it is that many of the parachurch groups disregard the initiative of the local church. Why are their programs scheduled at the stated times the church has agreed to assembly? Why are their money appeals any more valid than the financial needs of your own church? These all seem rather innocent and coincidental, but we can lose our perspective that God has called us to this gathered people. And not that one over there or that one up there. As we try to become all things to all men, our service will slip as we attempt to burn the candle at both ends. A lot of people do that. Something monumental had to occur to make you and me a people belonging to God. Absolutely. What was the radical transformation? Verse 9. We were called Out of darkness into God's wonderful light. How radical is that? I mean, how selective. We saw some of this in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19 verse 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. How I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Pretty selective, huh? You know that Egypt in the Bible stands for the world. The God-hating, sin-loving, spiritually ignorant world. That's Egypt. And Israel was part of that world at one time. They were just as superstitious, just as ignorant of the true God as the Egyptians were. What is more, all the nations of that day were in the same idolatrous mindset. Their gods were animals, and birds, and reptiles, and stars, and moons, and sun, anything in creation except the Creator. <laughs> Additionally, the world then has now had and has a sinful propensity to oppose any truth from God and His ministers. Sinful stubbornness of heart has its own blinding effect. There are people who will never yield to obvious truth. Jesus put it this way This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Matthew 13, verse 13 and following. So Jesus is putting it very strongly. There's seeing, and then there's seeing. There's hearing, and then there's mm, hearing. Hearing that understands. Add to this the spiritual enemy of our souls, Satan. Paul writes of him, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. You have an enemy. We have an enemy. Some time ago I was in a restaurant, buffet style. And there was a blind woman in there. Going through the buffet line. Think about this now. A Blind woman going through a buffet. She was completely dependent for her food upon her husband, who was leading her from food bar to food bar. He told her what was available to eat at each station. Do you want this? Do you want that? Here you have cranberry sauce. No, over here is the potato salad. And da 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 What a spiritual lesson here. Satan leads people to the spiritual smorgasbord of the world's religions. He doesn't tell them what to eat, but he limits what they eat by the food bars that he takes them to. They may eat of Buddhism or Hinduism, of Catholicism or Protestantism, and they eat their fill. They may eat of it all. But he never takes them to the gospel light food bar. They never get to taste and see that the Lord is good. Verse 2. And because they are blinded by their sin, they are completely at his bidding as to what they ingest. And Jesus, the bread of heaven, ain't on the menu. Yet no matter. The power of Satan to thwart the intent of God is zero. Paul put it this way. For God who said let light shine out of darkness. Made his light shine in our hearts. He made it. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Christ. Second Corinthians verse 6 and if you read the context it's in the context of Satan blinding the Corinthians but God made his light shine in their hearts God's call is effectual it stomps on Satan's agenda and it fulfills God's we sing the praises of him who call us out of darkness into his wonderful light Second Chronicles 20, verse 6 states, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in the heavens? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand. No one can withstand you. Light to darkness from Satan to the Son of God. That's the first radical transformation. And God is in control of that. And then Peter says, secondly, you were once without mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 10. Do you know that no one has any rights before God? No one. No one has any claim on God. God is not obligated to you in any way. You owe him. He doesn't owe you. Your sin forfeited any connection to his favor. To stumble and fall over Jesus is the deliberate rejection of God's Son that will earn you a spot in hell, but not in heaven. Justice will accommodate your choice unless mercy steps in and rescues you from self-destruction. And that's what God has done for every chosen child he loves. Brat kids notwithstanding, rebel defiance, all the same. God in his sovereignty says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's effort or desire, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Romans 9, verse 15 and following. I would say it this way, that God is glorified in both. In both. The judgment of sinners, as in the case of Pharaoh, glorifies God's justice and mercy to the sinning people of God glorifies his love may God be praised this day for both we need to praise him for both and many here today who have rejected Christ in the gospel to this point may you today come out of the darkness by coming to Christ in faith and repentance. Your destiny hangs in the balance. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for being the sovereign that you are. If you weren't, there'd be no salvation for any of us. We would go on our stubborn, sinful way, defying you, hating you, justifying our sin, loving the pleasure of it, having no time and no place for God in our lives. But you have pursued us. You have not given up on us. You tracked us down. You corralled us, as it were, and brought us to the foot of the cross. You didn't let one of your sheep, not one of your sheep, escape. Ninety-nine were in the fold, in the sheep pen, safe and sound, but there was one out there doing his or her own thing, rambling around in the bushes, in the fields, and you left the ninety-nine and went out and found that one and carried it home. None of us, your people, escaped. And we praise you for that. We thank you for that. The world thinks they're masters of their own destiny. We believers know that we're masters of (laughs) nothing. That God is the master of all. And Christ Jesus is Lord and King. And you brought us into the fold. And for that, we are eternally grateful and thankful. We pray that you would continue to do your work in our day. Send your Holy Spirit upon us, not just to teach us, but to woo us, to draw us, to bring us into your fold. For the glory of Jesus and for our good, we pray these things. Amen. Brown hymnal, number 466. 466. Great hymn. Jesus, lover of my soul. Let's stand.